Hi, this is Peter Pronovost. I serve as the UH Chief Clinical Transformation Officer, and we're here today continuing our podcast series on the web of well-being. That's our effort of how do we keep people healthy at home by breaking silos across the continuum and making sure the people we serve get the high-value care that they need. I'm here with Dr. Patrick Reynolds, who's our Associate Chief Medical Officer for the ACO in Behavioral Health and an Associate Professor in the Department of Psychiatry. And behavioral health plays a key role in population health. We found that people who have behavioral health diagnoses have double the cost and double the hospitalizations of people who don't have those. So for example, a heart failure patient with depression spends $100,000 a year compared to $44,000 without depression. Now we have a lot of work to do to make sure we integrate behavioral health, Patrick, with physical health. And in the past, those two streams have been separated and, and very much isolated. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing with our, our ACO and perhaps even our employee plan to make sure that people get access to the care they need and behavioral health is integrated with rather than separate from physical health. Sure. Thanks for having me, Pete. I appreciate you uh, talking about how siloed behavioral health has been over the last uh, few de de number of decades, really. Uh, uh, we spent a long time at treating behavioral health as if it was its own problem, gave it its own set of resources, and really uh, didn't develop... And maybe uh, even perpetuated the stigma with behavioral health by doing that. Oh, oh absolutely. Um, and, you know, and left the rest of the system feeling like uh, it didn't really know how to manage to behavioral health issues, uh, that they were uh, some kind of magic box of difficulty. And there are, are certainly some, some difficult pieces of it. But for the most part, it turns out that um, we, we should have been really uh, combining these streams all along. Long. Uh, you know, the, the first thing I'll say is that we, we have long-standing evidence to show that individuals uh, uh, receive most of their uh, behavioral health care from primary care providers, uh, and that those primary care providers have simply been doing that care without any support. Uh, and so the first thing that we decided to tackle here uh, when I stepped into this position was to uh, expand into a model of collaborative care <clears throat> that uh, worked by having behavioral health specialists uh, put directly within a primary care practice working directly with primary care while having a psychiatrist in the background supporting this to help primary care manage the mild to moderate behavioral health issues that came up in their practice without that person having to go uh, see someone from psychiatry. Just like they might do for mild diabetes or other medical conditions. That, that's exactly right. Uh, I think uh, this is partially the fault of uh, the, the field in psychiatry and partially the fault of healthcare overall, uh, uh, that we decided that this was something that you know psychiatrists needed to handle, handle on their own. But it turns out we can consult and take care of a wide variety of problems with just a few visits. And in fact, the clinic we've stood up, uh, we've stood up a clinic, an access clinic uh, that does consultations. Uh, and we, we thought we'd have trouble uh, kicking people out of that clinic. Turns out our average length of uh, kind of tenure of visits is two. Uh, that we see people and they come in and see us once, maybe twice, and then they're happy to go back to primary care for even fairly complicated uh, problems. When we support primary care or are managing to those, primary care does great. So they would come in and get a diagnosis and a treatment plan and then go back to primary care to carry out that plan. That's exactly right. We actually made it so that we could that, that the primary care could see the notes. We put the plan right in the notes. Uh, we tasked the, 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 the primary care providers. Haven't gotten a single complaint. Uh, from primary care about having too tough a plan or something that they couldn't handle. 
Yeah, um, I think quite the opposite. I think the primary care docs seem happy that they finally have access to a specialist to help guide the care. That's, they were thrilled because they've been dealing with this all on their own. That's exactly right. So we, we, we've had, had good success with that, with that model, and, and we're looking forward to expanding that as well. You mentioned I- I employees, and one of the things that we've, we've noticed and, and one of the things we're trying really hard to do is when we identify employees who are struggling with access to this stuff, routing them to one of these two models so that they can get that care immediately. Yeah, Patrick, we are looking. We have over 2,000 admissions amongst our employees or their beneficiaries for anxiety, depression, behavioral health issues. And much of those could be managed in, in the community if we had access to behavioral health services. So a lot more work to come on those fronts, but I think it'll serve our employees extremely well. Well, and I think it's really important, something people don't realize. Uh, to, to highlight a point you made earlier, people with behavioral health issues, the, 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 the outcomes that they, ha- that, that they have uh, that, that aren't very good and, and the money they spend is not primarily in behavioral health venues. That impacts their overall health. Correct. Uh, and so when someone gets admitted with anxiety as a, as a core driver, often they're admitted to a medical service uh, because that that anxiety is preventing them from managing their heart failure or their asthma or their diabetes particularly well. Um, and so the opportunity to, to, to actually help get people access to this helps the overall health. And that's a huge, huge deal. It's a web of well-being. That's exactly right. Patrick, speak to me a few minutes more about how we monitor how well we're doing with things like depression. I, I'd say as we want to make behavioral health more like or in, integrate with physical health, If you have hypertension, I monitor your blood pressure and I see how well I'm treating it. If you have diabetes, I monitor your A1C and we have quality measures for that. What are we doing to make sure if you have depression that it's not just this abstract concept that we're managing it with the same rigor and discipline that we do other medical conditions? Well, first, the field of psychiatry in general has spent most of its history using what we would call objective but qualitative measures of how things are doing, the patient's story. So it's the history and the interview that we spend all of our time on. The problem, as you're alluding to, is that uh, spending time on a story isn't something that is easy to capture and track uh, so that you know whether or not you're doing a good job. Uh, So over the last decade or two, we've had an emerging amount of evidence to show that uh, symptom scales, often patient ratings on symptom scales, uh, can go a long way toward helping us track how we're approaching general problems. Now, it's important to say that those scales aren't perfect. They aren't uh, perfectly diagnostic. Everyone's depression is a little bit different. Everyone's anxiety is a little different. But things like the PHQ-9, the GAD-7, or or the PCLC, which people are probably less familiar with but tracks post-traumatic stress disorder, are simple tools that patients can fill out on their own that give us ratings of how their overall symptom burden is. And if we could track those, that it would give us some uh, objective data to tell us how we're doing with this stuff. Um, And then if you add in there just a little bit of behavioral support, it helps us make sure we're managing the right nuance to every individual's case. It's really important to say it turns out we've done a very terrible job of implementing, uh, 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 getting these scores measured and and put into our medical record. And so one of the challenges I'm dealing with right now is actually how do you get those scores simply and easily uh, gathered and then put into the medical record so we can watch them. Yeah, and that sounds like a tractable problem, Patrick, that I have great faith in (laughs) you and our team's ability to solve. Patrick, we've made a lot of strides of integrating behavioral health into physical health and really combining this web of well-being so they're integrated. One area where we'd like to explore today where I think we need more work is in 
addiction services. As you know, we live in Northeast Ohio, which is the epicenter for the opioid epidemic, and you can't read uh, a day in the New York Times where a story of Ohio, of a high school decimated, of a family decimated, of uh, suffering and needless waste because of this epidemic is just heart-wrenching. It touches our employees, it touches their beneficiaries and, and, and their families, it touches all of those we serve. And we need to do more about this. There's emerging evidence about what works with things like MAT. So maybe tell us a little bit, Patrick, about how you see substance abuse being integrated into our overall web of well-being and what are some of the things UH is doing. So to start, um, ex exactly as, you, as you've pointed out, we have a major problem with addictions that has gotten worse over the last several years, but to be very clear, has been a massive problem for decades. Uh, and again, not so dissimilar from mental health, perhaps even more so. Uh, we stigmatized addictions and separated it out from uh, the rest of healthcare. Um, but on top of that, we treated addictions uh, uh, treatment uh, like it was... Uh, an acute episodic illness only. So almost all of the infrastructure we have is completely non-attached to the rest of our system. And what we do have are standalone acute rehab programs uh, that do very little by way of helping people manage their uh, disorder chronically. What we've come to understand about addictions as we've learned more about the physiology of it is that it ought to be something that we manage more like a chronic disease and that we ought to be supporting people uh, at all points uh, along the continuum of where they are with their treatment. So uh, what we've done here, at, uh, uh, or what we're doing here at, at University Hospitals, is first mapping out kind of where we are, what our infrastructure looks like right now, which we know, like every system in the country, isn't where it needs to be. Correct. Um, uh, the good news is we have tremendous support from leadership to start to re remedy that and, and to do that as quickly as possible. What we're looking to do is to uh, create essentially a, a strong web, if you will, of services that people can connect to wherever they land or touch the system so that they're connected not only easily to getting into acute treatment when they decide that they want to try to cut back or get, get, get clean and sober, but also uh, to, to connect them with a longitudinal kind of care manager or you know a navigator of sorts to help them think about how to manage their illness once they're done with that acute phase of the program. You know, um, we know that we're not going to be able to do all these services on our own, particularly out of the gate, so we know we're going to have to rely on partner agencies. Uh, but getting and convening groups together in order to uh, make sure that the, that care is available is going to be a hugely uh, important task. You know, Patrick, you mentioned how some of the issues with substance abuse or addiction are the same thing with behavioral health or other chronic diseases, and that is as we uh, we're working on a fee-for-service healthcare system that type of care tends to be reactive and transactional, right? You show up in the ED. That's exactly right. I yeah. put out a fire, you know, yeah. And, and, yeah, yeah. and it literally is. And what we're seeing in this web of well-being or in a health system organized around value, it is much more proactive and relational, right? How do we connect this web of services around people and proactively anticipate who might get into trouble or who needs resources so they don't show up at the emergency department or don't get admitted to the hospital, but rather they stay healthy at home.
So it's, it's hugely important to point out, um, addictions is a tough disease to treat. Um, and it has a lot of frustrating behavioral components to the families and providers that are trying to help people with that illness. Um, but uh, we, we, and as a result, we kind of hope that it goes away and react only when it's kind of staring us in the face, but that makes the treatment kind of the least pleasant for everybody. If we're more proactive uh, and we're looking to create uh, addictions treatment hubs um, where people, uh, you know, people, not just the patients themselves, but families and providers can have access to services uh, in a kind of organized and sensical way that's integrated with the rest of our, with our services, uh, we think that'll be huge. One, one great example of that, uh, doctors uh, Porter and Marino out of the uh, emergency medicine uh, department um, are working to build a uh, suboxone induction kind of uh, service out of the emergency room. Wow. They're seeing it. They know tons of people come into the door, and this is something that they could use or benefit from and are willing to try. Right now, access to that's terrible. So they've made the decision to look at building a clinic immediately right there and pilot this so that people can start that care when they hit the ER, which is to say that's the exact kind of proactive uh, response right. you're talking about. And it's one of many great initiatives that we have. Yeah, there's across the system and all over the place, our home care, our emergency department, our ACO, our primary care are all evolving in this web of well-being yeah. towards being much more systematic, proactive, and relational. And Well, it's great to have you as part of the team. You can see this building our web of well-being. We broke silos and built trusting relationships with our behavioral health colleagues and much more to come. But we rest assured that for our employees and our ACOs, we want to ensure that you have access to the behavioral health care that you need when you need it and that that care is state-of-the-art so that we help you stay healthy at home. Thank you for joining us and have a great day.